for the first time, we have Joel Richardson in our congregation from Kansas City. And I've heard about Joel for a long time. And I actually once heard him speak a long time ago at Roa Israel. And um, he is an author of many books. Many of you have read probably. And here's, he's got some out there. And they're free, by the way. So to take them, if you want to give a donation, that's fine too. And um, Joel is an incredible New York Times bestseller. But he's also has a heart for the Middle East, which I love when somebody has a heart for the Middle East because that's where God has given us a, a heart and a love for the people, there, for all the peoples, for Israel, but also for the surrounding nations too. He's uh, produced documentaries about the things that are going on there. And... Um, He's just, I think he's cutting edge as far as really having insight and wisdom onto what's happening in these days. So, Joel, why don't you come on up here? And I'm going to ask you to come on up here, too. Yeah, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for Joel. And, Carol, I want you to, you know, Jeremiah, call. And we just, this is kind of a joint thing. Not joint, and we're, you know, about the old days, you know, not that kind of joint thing. <laughs> But um, do the kids still call it joint? I don't know. I don't know. That's but that's good, you know. And then most of you, most of you don't know what we're talking about. But um, we've just just decided that this is a, a good time to have Joel come and to, to share what the Lord has put on his heart. And um, I just want to pray, and and then Carol, I'm going to ask you to pray over him too. Okay. Father, I just thank you that this is the day that you have appointed. This is the day that you've made, and we rejoice in that. Father, we thank you that you are here. You are here in this room, and I thank you for the word that you've given Joel, the mantle that's on him, Father, the insight and the wisdom that you've given him. Lord, anoint him to bring forth your word for us today. B'Shem Yeshua. Father, thank you so much for um, bringing Joel here and um, for giving him a word for this congregation. And I just pray uh, for our team that, Lord, we, that you bless him today with utterance um, to speak forth exactly what you want him to say uh, for this hour and this time, and that you give him um, great courage and boldness as he continues to go forth uh, talking about things that sometimes can be difficult for people to hear or different for people to hear. And I ask that you continue to open doors for him that no one can open but you. And you go before him at all times and hedge him and his family in as he goes on this journey. Thank you. Amen. And we're going to take an offering for Joel and his ministry at the end of the service. So, all right. All right. Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. I trust that um, the message that I have this morning or the study, the, the discussion that we're going to have, uh, we're going to look at the scriptures, I trust that it's encouraging. Um, I'm convinced that the primary purpose for gathering together at least once a week 
is to encourage one another. Um, it says in Hebrews, it says, don't neglect the gathering together of one another as some are in the habit of doing. It's really interesting. It's kind of a neat little wordplay, and it says, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the closer that we get to the return of Jesus, which is what? The return of Yeshua, which is the gathering together, when we will gather together to meet him in the air. He says, as the day of gathering approaches, be all the more deliberate to consistently gather together to essentially rehearse and to encourage one another concerning the day of gathering. It's kind of a, you can miss it in the English, the sort of little wordplay that's happening. And obviously we've just gone through uh, just a nightmare of a year, 2020, and 2021 is really not looking all that much better. Um, who, who knows? Who knows? So it was good to be here all. I'll, um, we'll talk to you next time. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's like who knows what the end of things are going to look like by the end of this, this year. Um, but it's just sort of been this, <laughs> this unfolding nightmare. Uh, that's gone on forever. And so I think more than ever, my heart and my desire is when I gather together with folks is to encourage everyone so that when we leave, our eyes will primarily be fixed on what it also refers to in, in Hebrews as the anchor of hope for our souls. And uh, it talks about, you know, it says sort of the Lord really wanted to reinforce and reiterate um, the reliability of the promises that he was making, you know, so he did it with an oath and he swore upon himself his little sort of technical backstory. And he says, essentially, so that the things that, he's, that he promised would be made clear. And then it refers to us, it says, so that we who have fled, I love that, that phrase, we're described as we who have fled. What have we fled? We've fled this entire messed up, corrupt, failing, dying system. When the Bible talks about the world, I was confused when I first came to faith. I'm also a former pothead. Um, I got saved at 19. So we're living in, we're living in the utopia. We were chatting, um, which, by the way, uh, Rabbi is also a former pothead. I don't know if he's ever, ever talked about that, but I just outed him. Um, but so we're living in the utopia that we all dreamed of, right? Like when I was a teenager, like legalize it. And now that I'm a parent with adult children and teenagers, it's the nightmare that I never want to live through. And especially in, in Colorado, it's horrible. Um, you guys are corrupt in the whole country. Or, I don't know, was it Washington first? It's spreading. Um, you know, it's like the Lord of the Rings, the darkness. It's spreading. But it'll soon be legal everywhere. Um, anyway, I forget what I was talking about. No, I'm just kidding. But um, as, a, as a former pothead... Um, what was I saying? <laughs> Gathering, together. Gathering together, the coming together. We who have fled. When I first got saved, thank you. When I first got saved, I started reading in the scriptures, and it says, whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I go, I like the trees. I like the mountains. I like the world. You know, like, it's not, when it says the world, it's not talking about the planet. It's not talking about the bunnies and the bushes and the trees and the clouds and the sky and the beautiful Colorado air and all of these things. It's talking about the system, this current, wicked, corrupt age. So the scriptures refer to, essentially, it, it lays out this view of history as this age and the age to come. This age is corrupt. This age 
is corrupted by the curse. And it's not just the curse for what it's worth of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's actually more comprehensive than that. First, of course, you had Satan rebelled and fell, and then you have the the fall of the watchers, and they decided to go into the daughters of men, and there's that whole Nephilim episode. And, you know, there's like corruption in the spiritual realm. There's corruption on earth. There's the curse, death, sin, all of this. Like everything is messed up. Existence as we experience it right now, primarily with regard to the governance, the, the, the earthly human governance and even the spiritual governance, there's corrupt, fallen principalities and it refers to Satan as the god of this world. And so it's, it's the whole system. It's the world that we have fled from. But it says we have fled to take hold of this hope that we have, this mutual common hope. And so what is that hope? Well, the story of redemption, the hope of Scripture, the entire focus of the entire book, everything is moving toward, pointing to, looking to, the day when he will return, the day of the Lord, and he will come back. And we won't merely sing about him, but we will see him with our eyeballs in glorified, resurrected bodies. And that's why I say eyeballs in sockets. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just we will be ghosts. You know, sort of we will recognize those that went on before us. Hey, auntie, is that you? You know, you're so much younger than I remember. It's not just like these sort of, what was the movie that Disney, the cartoon that just came out? I couldn't stand it. Um, what was it called? Uh, Soul. Yeah, they're all just kind of these like nebulous digital spirits or something. I was just like, no. You know, now if we were to die today, according to the scriptures, our spirits would be with him. But even those that have, as Paul says, fallen asleep, the bodies have fallen asleep, we are awaiting the day of the Lord, the resurrection of our bodies. Our bodies will come up out of the ground. Like, that's a strange concept. But we, were, we will essentially be able to taste and eat, um, which is exciting. You know, like, you don't hear that preached often in churches. The day is coming when we will see Jesus, we'll see Yeshua in Jerusalem, at the feast, with our eyes, and we will eat and drink sweet wine. And I, I'm sorry to the Baptists, we're going to get to this, but it's very clear, aged wine. And then it follows and it says, choice marrow for the vegetarians. It's, there's, because there's no such thing as vegetarian marrow. I don't, I don't believe there is. They might try, but it's not legit. And so these things resonate with us. Why? Why do they, why do, why do, so, you just, you, Joel's just got up there and started talking about eating food. And something in me got excited. Why? Because we like food. Because we were made to taste and smell and see and have bodies. And we will have glorified, resurrected, immortal bodies. And Jesus will not just be on the throne at the right hand of the Father, but he will be on the throne on the ground, on the throne of his father David, ruling and reigning over the nations. And the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and the entire system will be changed. So that's the good news. And so we gather together, at least weekly, um, we gather together to encourage one another concerning these things, because as soon as we leave, the entire system is structured and organized to discourage us, to discourage us and to frustrate us and to drive us crazy and to sow doubt and this and that. And we gather together and guys go, this hope is sure and firm and secure. And as the, the, 
the chaos of the world just gets darker and darker. As it says, darkness covers the, the earth, deep darkness the peoples. Because it's always the darkest when? Just before the dawn, right? That's what it's referring to is really the last days, which increasingly feels like we're sort of transitioning into that time. And I don't pretend to know the time, but it definitely feels that way. Globally, everything's corrupt. The, the, the current state of affairs in our country is incredibly discouraging. Uh, and then the chief's lost. I mean, it's just like everything feels like it's falling apart. <laughs> hey, back down. So I... Um, being from Kansas City, I drove out in July to go camping with some friends out in Aspen. And it, the funny thing happened is when you start driving from Kansas City, home of the Chiefs, and we were the champions at the time, there's a certain point where you transition from Chiefs territory and all of a sudden you're starting to approach uh, Broncos territory. And I didn't realize that because I was driving. It's when you fly, you realize I've just entered enemy territory. But when you're driving, you don't realize. And so we stopped and we probably had just crossed in over the state line and my son had a chief's shirt on and we went to some kind of like little, um, you know, redneck gas station. And the lady's like, you like the chiefs? And we're, I was like, yeah, heck yeah. And she was just like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, whoops, I didn't realize we just, anyway, so I know, I know, I know, stop. It was just, just trying to twist the knife. And that was it. That was when I finally just gave up all hope. No, just kidding. But no, we do. We, we hold on to these little things. But um, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, quite frankly, it's a nightmare. I look out and I go, what are the chances, you know, the inauguration, let's unify. And then you hear the, <laughs> they talk about unifying the country, you know, like all this kind of political rhetoric. We need to come together. And then just like a couple days later, you see the vice president on Ellen saying, she goes, if you had to get stuck in an elevator with President Trump or Mike Pence or some other guy, who would you choose? And she's like, does one of us have to come out alive? And they all start laughing like, haha, yeah, like I would murder them. And I'm like, man, so much unity. But um, the, the point is the hope when I, I'm don't forgive me for talking politics, but the point is when I look out, and, I, and I'm a pretty, uh, I think I'm a pretty fair-minded guy, I go, what are the chances of this country recovering from the current condition? And I go, I have, I have no hope for our country. I know that sounds horrible, like apart from a miracle, a revival, I mean, it would take a revival of a parallel of something we have, none of us have seen in our lifetimes, nothing in our lifetimes, it, that's what it would take to begin nudging this thing in a different direction. Like, there, like the division, the partisanship, the hatred, the rage in our country, it is incredibly, incre it's dark. And sorry for depressing you all, but the point is this, our hope is not in, like when the world melts down around us, our hope is not in the salvation of the United States. It's not in any of these things, our hope is in the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the messianic kingdom of God on the earth. What is a, how do you summarize what biblical hope is all about? Because ultimately, this is the thing. We need to primarily, like it's okay to contend for our nation, to contend, to contend for our children, our families, our health, all of these things. But our ultimate hope, our primary hope has to be in biblical hope. And how does the Bible summarize it? It's essentially this. The Lord is going to restore Eden. 
He is the one that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And not just crush the head of the serpent, as it says in Genesis 3.15. You're going to bruise, you're going to strike his heel, and he's going to crush your skull. That's, that's how the Messiah is first defined. But it's not just that. He's going to undo the effects of everything that that deceiver brought with the curse. And he's going to go even further than that. And he's going to correct and humiliate those principalities that fell, and he's going to replace the leadership of the earth, not with corrupt politicians and corrupt principalities, but with humble, servant, meek leaders. Those who chose to put themselves at the back of the line to be servants, those that the world probably never heard of, or the church half the time has never heard of, and they, he will say, come, you have been faithful over little, little. take charge over ten cities. That's the nature, I mean, the complete reorganization of everything after he returns. And it says, and the law of God will go forth from, from Zion. So this is the good news. Now, from a biblical perspective, the Bible is telling the story of redemption. I love telling the story, talking about the story. Let's look at the story, and let's not just look at it as a story, but let's see our place in the story. Let's Let's see ourselves in the story and to understand that we all have individually and as a community, as a congregation, as a house, we all have a very important integral role to play in the story. It's not just a story that we're reading, but that we're part of and to see ourselves in the story, in the particular moment in the story, right? Okay, so when we look at the story of redemption, and it's been unfolding for a few thousand years, and we're toward the tail end. At the very least, we are toward the tail end of this thing. So if we're to understand the way the Lord tells the story from, from the biblical perspective, most Christians don't really, we have a very flip-flopped perspective. Okay, I'm a Gentile, I'm not Jewish. I'm a former pothead from South Shore, Massachusetts, mostly, I always thought I was Portuguese until I did that stupid ancestry thing. <laughs> Found out, oh, we're Italian. Um, and a bunch of other things. Basically a ghetto mutt. You know, like, hey, buddy, it's a German shepherd. Ooh, looks like he's got some, um, what are the little hot dog dogs' names? Dachshund. Looks like he's got some dachshund in him. You know, I always joke. I'm like, um, the government secretly bred some dachshund into me. That's where I get the short legs. Mama, look what they did to your baby. But um, anyway, um, from a Christian perspective, you know, I was nominally Catholic. I get saved. And of course, I did the dumb thing, which you should never do, especially if you're a pothead, which is you open at the back of the book first, the book of Revelation. That's like, that's don't, don't start there. Um, but most Gentiles, they start in the New Testament. Most Christians start in the New Testament. And so if you think about it, there's a lot that the Lord was investing in, in terms of the story unfolding before you ever get to the New Testament. And so, basically, most Christians, we are the person that turns on the Avengers, a movie or whatever movie. You're at the end of the movie, and there's a green guy, that's the Hulk. There's another guy shooting gamma rays out of his hands, and this girl winks at him. What's that about? And there's like this big battle, like, and you're trying to figure out what in the world the story's about, and you just turned on the last 20 minutes of the story. Like, you have to start at the beginning of the story. This is basic common sense. Jesus' Bible 
Yeshua's Bible, the Apostles' Bible. It was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. And so we often, we, we, we get excited. We, we, wow, you know, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John. You know, we're really pouring in. But we often come with all these sort of preconceived Gentile. In other words, all that means Gentile is we don't have the Old Testament backstory. We're not Old Testament literate. We don't know the beginning of the story. So we read this. And then we, you know, we have sort of these various Christian theological assumptions, and then we just dabble in the Old Testament. We kind of go back, we read some, you know, Sunday school stories, we dabble, but we usually try to impose our often sort of Gentile, Christian-centric ideas back onto the Old Testament, whereas we have to begin at the beginning of the movie, begin at the beginning of the story. So if we do that, what we would see is that the way God tells the story, the way the Bible tells the story, is at the beginning of the story, you have this towering mountain, and that's the Exodus. The story of the Exodus, which culminates, so obviously the Exodus is Israel being led out of Egypt. You could say a towering mountain is creation, okay, that's a pretty big mountain. But really, in terms of the unfolding story of redemption, Exodus is just, you guys are familiar with mountain ranges, a towering peak, okay? And it, that thing culminates, interestingly, at a mountain called Sinai. And unlike anything that has ever happened in human history happens at the mountain. God himself came down. We read some of the passages. And how did I know that, we're actually, that, I, had, uh, that I chose the right message today? Because... The, the, the Torah portion today was Exodus 24. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at today is Exodus 19 through 24. But we'll get to that. And you think about it like, you know, I'm charismatic. Um, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, which means I've seen some crazy stuff. I've seen some sadly crazy stuff. And I've seen some gloriously crazy stuff, right? Like if you stick around long enough, you'll see both. And um, I've seen some amazing miracles. And to me, a miracle is like, you know, God is invisible. Like, you know, we read the book, we believe in him, and we have all our various reasons for believing. But for the most part, he remains silent. You know, he speaks, but I mean, he's hidden. But at times, he, he, peek, he rips the curtain up a little bit. Peekaboo! And you're like, <gasps> you know, like when miracles really happen, like when you really see, you're like, you know, like you're just like, oh my gosh, that just happened. Or, you know, if he's really, like, there's moments where he does a little peekaboo, but it's usually just peekaboo. And he could very easily just rip the curtains wide open and go like, ah, and everybody would be like, ah, you know, like, you want him to do that. You, you know, like, I don't know, like, if you're like me, but I'm awesome. Like, Lord, just show me an angel, and then I'll never sin again. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? But it's just kind of like, I'll never, you know, like, then I'll be so confident if I could just see an angel. So-and-so says he saw an angel. I would like to see an angel, whatever, right? Like God could just rip the curtains open and we would just, but he doesn't do that. Why does he not just rip the curtains open? Because he wants, because our life in God is all about one thing. It's our relationship with him. Relationship is built on trust. Trust grows through the, through the trials and the tribulations. You can't, trust is a muscle that has to be developed. You can't just give it to someone. It's something that has to be developed. And a relationship can only go as deep as there is trust. And he wants us to grow in trust. So he doesn't rip the curtains open. Occasionally he gives us little peaks. But what happened at Mount Sinai, what happened at the culmination of the Exodus is unparalleled. God came down in blazing glory and fire with the blasting of the shofars, the blasting of trumpets that got louder and louder. The earth is quaking. 
And to the point where, you know, however many people were there at the base of the mountain begging Moses, please tell him to stop talking. Like there was no like, was that God? Was it not God? Like they were just like, please, we can't bear it anymore. Nothing like that has ever happened in human history. Throughout redemptive history, this is the towering mountain that kicks the whole story off. So we're going to look at the, um, the Exodus. We're going to look at the covenant that God made. God, between God himself and Israel at the mountain. Because from a Christian perspective, the way that we kind of view it is we go, well, you have, and most Christians don't even hardly know the covenants. The covenants are the very foundation of the unfolding story, the promised plan of God, the unfolding story of redemption. You know, you have the, well, of course, the Noahic covenant, God promises not to destroy the earth through a flood. You have the Abrahamic covenant. He chooses this guy named Abram. Hey, you know, leave behind your family, move over here, and I'm going to give you and your descendants this piece of property. It's like, really? You're kicking the whole story of redeeming the cosmos by giving some guy a piece of property and promising him? You know, that's how it's very mundane sometimes the way the Lord works. But this is how it all begins. So most Christians are somewhat familiar with the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and we look at the Davidic covenant. God says someone's going to rule on your throne forever. And this is tied into the messianic prophecies that Yeshua, Jesus, would be the one that would ultimately fulfill the promises made to David. And we know the new covenant. This is whereby we receive the spirit and the, the new birth and all of these things. And we're made holy. But then we look at the Mosaic covenant. We look at the covenant at Sinai. And from an evangelical Christian perspective, most often it's viewed as, well, that's the old covenant. That's bad. That's passing away. That's, you know, they'll we'll almost exclusively only cite the verses that Paul the Apostle says, which can be viewed in the negative, and almost always skip over the statements that Paul makes that are positive concerning Torah, the giving of covenant. So I want to, without getting into this whole issue of, of Torah and how should we relate to Torah, that's just a whole other issue. I just want to look at what happened at Mount Sinai to understand the beauty, from a biblical perspective, to understand the beauty of what took place there, to understand the biblical narrative as God expects us to understand it. So I want to begin with Exodus 19, 5 through 6. So to understand the covenant at Mount Sinai, we have to understand that it's entirely framed, it's told by God as a love story. And the covenant is framed, and it should be understood, and it is understood by the biblical prophets, and it was deliberately framed by God as a betrothal ceremony, a betrothal covenant between God and Israel. You could say a marriage covenant, but of course, in biblical times, you had betrothal, and then later you had sort of the consummation, and that's the, the marriage in a more proper sense. They don't have engagement and then a wedding. They have the betrothal ceremony, and then they have the final consummation sometime later. So it begins, as any love story does, with a proposal. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Israel's coming out of the land. They're following this pillar of cloud, this incredible manifestation. And the Lord speaks, and he says, Now then, he's making this offer. If indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my segula. Segula is a very interesting Hebrew word. It means, it's kind of like the crown jewel in a king's crown. It's my most treasured possession. He goes, look, all the nations are mine. Let's be very clear. All of the pagans, all of the Gentiles, the Iranians, the Portuguese, the Lebanese, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, everybody's mine. 
but you will be my special treasured possession. There is a, it, it begins with a very unique calling and special election. It doesn't mean that God loves Jews more than he loves other people, but as part of his process and his plan to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, he goes, I'm going to begin with this particular people. He goes, if you'll obey my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, but you will be my representatives. You will be my priests, my ambassadors that will teach. You'll be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. So he begins with this proposal. He says, if, okay, and how do they respond? Verse 7 through 8. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set before them these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes, I accept the proposal. And Moses, you know, yes, yes. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now what's funny about this is they had no idea what they were committing themselves to. They had no idea. He's like, if you'll accept this incredibly detailed covenant with all these legal requirements, you'll be my treasure. And they're like, yes! And he's like, I haven't even told you what's in it yet. And they're like, who cares? But here's the thing is, he, the Lord loves it. The Lord loves it when in our, in our ignorant zeal we say yes to him. And he praises him. He's like, oh, that, you know, so there's an interesting thing here. We won't elaborate on that too much, but the Lord celebrates the yes in their heart. And, and all of us, you know, like we, we get zealous, we say yes, and then we, you know, like we just fail. That's okay. The Lord loves the yes. He, know, he already knows ahead of time that we're going to fall, right, and, and, and fall a hundred times. He loves the yes. Okay, so we, we begin, as any good love story is, with a, with a proposal. And actually, I didn't even, just to back up a little bit, I didn't even touch on this for brevity, for the sake of brevity, but it begins with the Lord, like any good romance starts. I always ask when I'm in a church and there's like young guys in their teens, I go like, if you like some girl, like you call them out. There's so much power in the microphone. Call out some poor 17-year-old kid and say, if you like some girl, what's the first thing you do? And they're like, talk to my dad? And I'm like, yeah, right. Um, the, the real answer is you start strutting. You start strutting. You start trying to, you know, get her attention or whatever. And what's funny is the story begins, if you think about it, because Israel was in bondage in Egypt. The whole story starts out with basically God starts strutting. Like the whole thing. But in, in it's not only that. Like it's not just strutting. Like it's demonstrating his power. He's like, he's like, he's flexing. He rips the stinking ocean in half. All right, like that's not just like, hey, and, it, and then it, what's funny is it refers to what the Lord does throughout the Exodus, it refers, refers to when he showed his strong arm, like he was literally flexing. And then he's like, can your old boyfriend do this? Which is like the Egyptians who are like the most powerful gods in the world. He rips the ocean in half and they're like, what? And then he's like, oh, by the way, I drowned your old boyfriend. <laughs> really? Because like, they're on the other side and they're looking back and they're like, oh my gosh, there's Pharaoh and like the green berets of the day and they're all dead. He's like, I just eliminated the competition. <laughs> and then he gets to the other side and he's like, and not only am I like the strongest guy in the room, but I'm also very compassionate. He provides water from the rock and manna and quail. And he's like, you know, there's the compassionate side, right? I'm confusing the, um, the guys. So then... Okay, as we're moving toward the mountain, okay, so they've accepted the proposal. In any good Jewish wedding, there is the mikvah. 
Okay, the mikvah is this ritual dunking, washing, cleansing, which, um, you know, if you grew up in synagogue, you know that throughout the nation there are all these locations, sometimes they're in synagogue, sometimes they're not, where you reserve a time to go in and do a ritual mikvah before the wedding. The woman does. Does the does guy do a mikvah? No. So the, the wife, the, the wife-to-be, does a ritual mikvah. So Exodus 19, before, and of course, Israel is who? Israel's the bride in this narrative. God is the husband. So the Lord says to Moses, Exodus 19, verse 10, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready. So before the ceremony, you have the mikvah. Okay, and this is exactly that. Have them consecrate themselves. Then you have, at any Jewish wedding, you have the chuppah. The chuppah is the conspicuous, you know, at every Jewish wedding, you're going to have the canopy. The bride and groom stand under the canopy. Um, in the, uh, what was the, the movie, um, was it Meet the Fockers? <laughs> no, I was going to say Meet the Fockers, where, <laughs> probably not the greatest movie to bring up. And, but um, anyway, where, um, what's his name? He, he hand carves this incredible hoopah, um, and then um, Ben, Ben, what's his name? Ben Stiller accidentally burns it, yeah. But um, yeah, you remember that one. Uh, how did, I forget, he gets fuel all over and. Oh, no, they, they yeah, yeah kind of like Father of the Bride. They, they, they lacquer it, and then he catches it on fire. But, and he's like, yeah, and, I, and um, the other guy, what's the other actor's name? Um, anyway, he's like, I carved the whole thing from a solid piece of wood. <laughs> it's, got, it's like this incredibly elaborate thing. Anyway, so the hoopah, the bride and the groom stand under it. So Exodus 19, verse 16 through 17. This is, this is really fascinating. It came about on the third day, again, after the mikvah, when it was morning, so this is the beginning of God showing up. He shows up. I mean, again, we have to recognize the gravity of what's happening here. The, God, the invisible God of heaven shows up, not fully in the fullness of his glory, and not just in front of one person, a prophet, but in front of everyone. <clears throat> there was thunder and lightning, flashes, and a thick cloud descends upon the mountain in a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now in the Hebrew, the term at the foot of the mountain, actually, like in a literal sense, is they stood under the mountain. But now, again, in terms of the cloud, they followed this pillar. It would appear as a cloud by day, fire or light by night, and they would follow it. Now, it's referred to as a pillar, but when you read the whole narrative, it's not just this single column, column structure. It also was broad enough at the top to have given all these people shade during the day. So I think structurally it had to be like, oh, say like a mushroom, you know, or like an umbrella, so to speak. So it, it, it was a column, but then at the top it was much bigger. So there's a cloud. There's something profound about the cloud. This is, this is Yahweh's presence in their midst, okay? And then this... this Umbrella settles over the mountain as if God himself provided the hoopah. And you go, oh, you sure you're not reading into that? Yes, because later in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 4, which we'll actually look at, when Messiah comes, he said, over the whole vicinity of Zion, there will be a canopy. And it uses very clear Exodus language. And it says there will be this hoopah. And it uses the word hoopah in Hebrew over the whole vicinity of Zion. 
So it began at Sinai, will ultimately conclude and culminate at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So it's a concept that the prophets certainly recognized here in Exodus. It's not just something Joel's making up to fit with his narrative. Now we're skipping forward a bit to chapter 24. <clears throat> sort of between all of this, the Lord gives all of the details of Torah. And so this is, it's the giving of Torah, but again, understanding a Jewish wedding, this is what's called the ketubah. The ketubah is the legal, it's, so in modern times in a wedding, we have, we have the wedding vows. And it's always this flowery stuff that we write. I promise to love you unconditionally forever. And that's all good and fine. But the ketubah is like this, this legal document. It's not just like you know, metaphorical or, or like, you know, um, what's the term? It's not just kind of like these more emotive type of emotional terms. It's like, I agree that I will always put the toilet seat down. You know what I mean? Like, it's very specific, right? It's, it's all, okay, and I agree. And he lays it out in great detail. You know, like, when you read Torah, right, like, it's very specific. And then, you know, you'll dab the blood on the back of the ear. And, you know, like, it's, it's, very, it's very specific. But it's a legal agreement. And in any Jewish wedding, there's the ketubah. And at the end of the wedding, they sign it. It's a legal agreement. So Torah, okay, you could say it's a legal agreement, it's a legal covenant, but really from, a, from a, the perspective of understanding this as a, as a marriage covenant, these are the wedding vows. Torah is the wedding vows. And so, you know, oftentimes from a Christian perspective, we're like, oh, the law, eh, you know, and no one likes to be told, no one like, I don't like speed limit signs. You know what I mean? Like, no one likes rules, period. Like, it's hard to frame rules but no one looks at your marriage vows like, oh, oh she's getting unable to marriage vows again. Oh, you know, like, like, it's just such a burden. I get to constantly put up with these stupid marriage vows. You know, like, like we have to view it in terms of the beauty that the Bible frames it as. It's, it, these are the things that they agreed to in terms of this, this marriage love covenant. So verse 3 Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice. Now they know the details. Before they committed, but now they know the details. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. What is that? I do. At the end of the, way, at the, end of the, mar the vows, what do you say? Do you agree? To, yes, yeah, I do. And that's exactly what they did here. They read the ketubah, and then they all said, everything we will do. Exodus 24, verse 4, at the end of every covenant, there are, the, God is very much a very liturgical God. He, has, he likes ritual. And the reason is, is because he's a God of object lessons. He likes to burn things, tattoo them into our brains so that we don't forget. He's always like, rehearse this, do it again, do it again, do it again. Remember, 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 do not forget, do not forget. Teach these things to your children. And do the ritual, not so that you'll just get lost in the ritual, so that you'll remember. Don't forget the essence of it. But do it. And God is very much into rituals. So at the end of the covenant, there are some very clear rituals. And what he does is he says in verse 4, Moses arose early in the morning, according to the Lord's commandments, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. So at the base of the mountain, Moses built this altar with 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to show you a couple pictures 
this is not the main purpose of this, this uh, message, but over the past few years, I've been incredibly blessed to be able to go to the real Mount Sinai, which is in Saudi Arabia, which some of you may have tracked with this over the past few decades. There's been a handful of different people that have snuck into Saudi Arabia. It's very hard to get into Saudi Arabia unless you have a work visa. Um, but there's been some folks that have snuck in and, and, and taken pictures, and there's been a lot of interest and a lot of skepticism and controversy, and people are like, no. I will say with absolute myself 100% confidence, I firmly, completely believe the real Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. I got to go a few years ago. I went back um, in 2019. I led the first Christian tour into Saudi Arabia in history. They opened up tourism about two weeks before we went in, and it's an amazing story. But go to the first slide. At the foot of the mountain, I know it looks like just a bunch of rocks, but you see these two, three stone walls. Now, one of the requirements in the scriptures is that the altar had to be built out of rocks that were not cut, naturally stacked stones. We have these naturally stacked stones. Go to the next slide. This is it from up above. Now, to the right, you can see the river, the river that comes down the mountain, which is exactly what Deuteronomy describes, the river that comes down the mountain. And right next to the river is the altar. Now, at the very bottom is the end of the altar. That's where the cows would have been sacrificed. See right up by the top, can you see the, the pillars? I'm going to show you another picture. Go to the next slide. Oh, look, pillars. Isn't that just such a weird coincidence? So you literally have, and a few of them are broken, but there basically is, there's 12 pillars. Now, they're not huge. There may have been more. There's, you can see fragments of things. But um, these meet the requirements of exactly what the biblical text describes. And it's interesting. I could talk about this. The Saudis have gone in and done archaeological surveys, and what they found was organic matter, ashes, and bones, like exactly what you would expect to find if it was an altar, and amazing things. But so essentially, for the sealing of the covenant, how do you seal the covenant? But with blood. Every covenant sealed with blood. New covenant sealed with blood. The Mosaic covenant cut all these animals in half, and, and so on and so forth. It's a pretty brutal thing. But then what he did, go to the next slide, verse 5 through 6. Moses sent men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings, and they sacrificed a bunch of bulls. And by the way, why did the altar go up and then turn at an angle? Because this is how slaughterhouses are designed. Because when Clarabelle and all of her sisters are walking down the aisle, you don't want them to see what's about to happen up around the corner. Moses is up there. And, um, and so they're just thinking, oh, what, maybe there's food up ahead. <laughs> and they go around the corner and, Allahu Akbar! No, that would be Arabic. But basically, it, that's, you know, people who, has anybody here ever worked in a slaughterhouse? Probably not. But anyway, that's, they'll say, yeah, they're always built in this way so that the, the animals don't see because they're smart. I know it's horrible, but this is the nature of blood sacrifice. There's, there's, a, there's a sacrifice involved. So he sends the young men, and um, they sacrifice the bulls. And Moses took half of the blood, and he put it in basins. And the other half he sprinkled on the altar. So he sprinkles a bunch on the altar. And then, verse 7 through 8, he took the book of the covenant, and again he read it aloud. So he, so he read it, and they all go, yes, we will do everything. And then in the process of sealing it, he reads it again in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Now, I don't believe that he went out and, you know, like a Catholic priest with like holy water, like walked down the aisle. I don't think he splashed everyone with blood. I think he splashed it on the pillars. 
which represent the 12 tribes. Each one represents, so they stood as representatives of the people, which it's right next to the altar. And then he said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made in accordance with all of these words. So again, it's sealed with blood. Why? A handful of reasons. One, because how, is, how do we conclude, even in modern times, the, the marriage ceremony? We say, in sickness and health, until death do us part. It's intended to be a covenant unto death. And by the way, okay, so like the Abrahamic covenant is, an, is a covenant. It's a promise between God and Abraham. He says, I'm going to do this. A, a marriage covenant we think it's two people promising to each other. It's actually two people promising to God, both individually. We will stay with this other jerk until death. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you might not see it yet, but you'll come to understand that later, in my wife's case, within the first week. No, um, but it's a covenant unto death. So first of all, it's unto death, but in, in the case of the, uh, the Mosaic Sinaitic Covenant, it's also, and if we break it, penalty is death. And that's clearly laid out in the stipulations. If you violate this, the Lord laid out the curses of the covenant. Here's what's going to happen. Death is the in the penalty, which the new covenant resolves. Okay, so that's, right, it's the new covenant, the blood of, of Yeshua that makes atonement for all of our failure to keep the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. So there's multiple things there. It's unto death, and it's also the penalty is death for, for breaking it. And then at the end of every good wedding is what? A big old marriage supper, a big old party. So here we are, verse 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord. Where's the Lord? He's at the top of the mountain. He says, you and Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, so they are the representatives of all Israel, you shall worship at a distance. But Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, and they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So the majority of the people stay down, but the 70 elders, Moses, Aaron, his brother, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, they come up. But here's what's fascinating, is that when scholars study the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, and so they, when they study the Exodus narrative, they conclude that Mount Sinai is structured in a two-tiered system. Like the temple, you have the holy place, but then you have the holy of holies. Moses went all the way up to the holy of holies. Everybody else, they're in, essentially in the holy place. So they go, there's, there's clearly two tiers to the mountain. Keep that in mind for a second. And this is just amazing. Verse 9 through 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. They're looking up at him. Under his feet was something like a pavement of lapis lazuli, which is cobalt blue, brilliant blue, as bright blue as the sky. Some translations say transparent blue like the sky. But here's the miracle. They saw God, but God did not kill them. God did not raise his hand against the leaders of Israel. And then it says this, they saw God and they ate and drank. What? They saw God and they ate a feast, which is, again, the sealing of the covenant. You seal it, yes, with blood, and then you seal it with a meal. You seal it with a feast on top of Mount Sinai. 15, verse 15 through 18. Moses, 
went up to the mountain. He goes all the way up, and the cloud covers the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it for six days. The glory, the shining, it refer, the Bible repeatedly refers to the glory of the Lord like the sunrise, like the shining forth of the sun. It compares it to the sunlight. It's there in Isaiah 60, right? Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory, it's... You, Arise and shine. It's like the rising of the dawning of the sun. It's always darkest before the dawn. It uses the language of the dawn. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And that carries out into the New Testament in terms of Jesus returning in glory. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain. It covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud in the eyes of the sons of Israel. To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. Like this was... It's so funny when you read secular scholars, they try to like justify this naturally. They're like, ooh, we found some desert herb. We think all the Israelites were tripping. Like literally, that's a theory. This is, what happened here is unparalleled in history. To the eyes, they're looking up, blazing fire on top of them. And some people are like, well, it was a volcano. Yeah, and Moses went up into it. You know, like it's just, it's, it's funny. Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain, and he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, when I went the first time, I saw all kinds of things. I did all kinds of studies. It absolutely convinced me that it's the real Mount Sinai. When I went back the second time, October 2019, we did the tour, and then afterwards we stayed after, and we hiked up. I'm going to show you some pictures. Start with the first picture. So that arrow is pointing to the cave. If you're standing at the base, you're basically standing down where Moses' altar is. You look up, there's a cave right there. It's like a belly button in the picture. And, of course, if you know the narrative, that's where Elijah would have been in the cave, right? If it's this Mount Sinai, there's got to be a cave on the prominent cave. Well, there it is. And it's a, it's a cave. It's about 20 feet deep, sand floor. In fact, when, well, anyway, I won't get in. When we went up, we camped up on the other side, and one of the guys just happened to have Muhammad's revenge, Sometimes he had diarrhea, and, and, and he was vomiting. And he hiked up that far, and he's like, I can't make it any further, but I've been wanting to come here my whole life. And we're like, like we're going on. like you know. And he's like, I'm just going to sleep in the cave. And so he did. He slept in the cave. But then the next day, he came over and met us. And he's like, it was horrible. I, was, I had diarrhea, and I was vomiting all night. We're like, in Elijah's cave? And uh, so we were making a documentary, and we were just joking about how funny it would be if we had, like, a, a GoPro. Like, every once in a while, we'd flash over to him just like, um, and then he was like, and I was so sick. He goes, I was laying there, and there was this giant spider on the ceiling above me. And I wanted to get rid of it so bad, but I couldn't get up. <laughs> just, anyway, so, um, okay, so here's the peak. You're down, you're looking up at the peak, but here's the thing. You can't see the real peak. Go to the next slide. That's the real peak. See, now, now you can see down at the base, you can see where the river comes down. And then right at the base is Moses' altar and the 12 pillars. There's Elijah's cave. Now, you can't go around this way. It's to, to get over that ridge is very steep. So you get about 45 minutes hike up to the cave, maybe 45, 50 minutes, and then you have to go around. It takes you a couple hours to get over. And here's what we found when we got over there is there's a football field plateau over the ridge. Look at that. And... 
I go, we got up there, and it's surrounded by this huge ridge that's probably 30, 40 feet tall, and you're looking up at the peak. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, you could not create, Hollywood could not create a better set design exactly according to what the biblical narrative, and we're like, this is where the 70 elders ate and looked up and saw the feet of God. Go to the next slide. We're up a little closer. That's still another couple hours hike for what it's worth. And yes, the top is darker rock, and I won't get into that, whether or not that was the, you know. But, um, and we did. We hiked up to the top. I didn't quite make it up to the tippity-tippity top. Three of the guys did. Three didn't. It was dark. We're exhausted. I'm like, I made it. <laughs> it was like one of those. And, um, but we're going to go back. Anyway, we camped up there. That night, we camped. And we didn't plan it this way. It just worked out. It was the last night of Sukkot which is the night when you're supposed to camp outside in a sukkah, but you're supposed to be able to look through and see the stars. Go to the next slide. That was our view. The Milky Way just careening over my... I mean, it was just... I'm sorry I had to show you the pictures because it's just probably one of the most... I, I hate to use the word magical, but it was just one of the most surreal moments. I'm just like, is this real? And the shooting stars all night, and it was just absolutely incredible. Go to the next slide. Then you have the marriage certificate. Exodus 24, 12 through 13. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there. I will give you the stone tablets, which he, by the way, carved with his own finger. The Lord did the first time. Um, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Moses went up with Joshua, and he went up to the mountain of God. The marriage certificate at the end of the wedding, there's the marriage certificate. And then the 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 pastor or the rabbi signs it. Now it's an official document, right? So you have, the point is you have all of these elements of a wedding. This is not stuff I'm making up. This was intended by God to be understood as a betrothal or a marriage covenant. The biblical prophets later use, they're like, your maker is your husband. You know, and they use the analogy in the book of Hosea. Israel is essentially Gomer, the unfaithful bride. God is Hosea, the one that puts up with her despite her unfaithfulness to demonstrate his, like this storyline carries through throughout the biblical prophets. Now, I talked about the fact that the biblical narrative, if we understand the story of redemption, it begins with this towering mountain, the Exodus, Mount Sinai. But if we know the full story, then we know there's another towering mountain, which is the first coming of Messiah, the first coming of Yeshua. That's a towering mountain. It makes up almost the end. And they've all been looking forward and pointing to that. However, there's another towering mountain, which is actually way bigger than either those two. You go, wait, there's another one that's bigger than Mount Sinai? Yes, much bigger. You go, wait, bigger than the coming of Jesus, the whole New Testament? Yes, much bigger. That's the return of Jesus. If we understand the biblical narrative, that thing dwarfs the other two. In fact, the entire story of the Exodus is intended to be understood as a faint foreshadow of the ultimate Exodus, the ultimate redemption, the ultimate deliverance to come. The return of the Messiah, from a biblical perspective, all of the prophets, Moses, John the Baptist, everyone is looking forward and yearning and waiting and groaning and longing for that day. That is the entire focal point of all biblical hope. It's all culminating. That is the day when he will show up. The God who came down in fire on Mount Sinai in, in a storm clouds in blazing glory with lightning and thunder and the blasting of trumpets and an earthquake is coming back on the clouds. 
in a mighty earthquake, when the, and it's not going to be a white, fluffy cloud in the sky with some Caucasian hippie, you know, like in classic Christian art. The entire picture of the return of Jesus is intended to be understood as the culmination of what God gave a, a glimmer of at Mount Sinai. Seriously, all of the motifs, all of the imagery, all of it. And so when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he refers to himself repeatedly as the bridegroom, he's saying, I am the God of Mount Sinai. He was claiming to be Yahweh the Son. Yes, he's not the Father, but he was claiming to be Yahweh the Son, the God who showed up on the mountain, that aspect of God that has been revealing himself ever from the beginning. He's coming back in the cloud again, on the clouds, the cloud rider in blazing glory with a mighty earthquake and all of that imagery, the blasting of trumpets, everything. So let's wrap this up. We're going to look at the eschatological wedding. We touched on this already, Isaiah 4. At the conclusion of chapter 4, Isaiah, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, all of Israel that survives this final period of tribulation, they will be, they will be joined into the covenant. And the Lord will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion as he's in the process of washing away our filth. And he's purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment, the spirit of burning. Then, after he returns, the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of flaming fire at night, clearly intending to be reflecting the Exodus language and for all the glory will be a chuppah, a canopy over Mount, Mount Zion. And then in Isaiah 25, here it is again, verse 6 through 7, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish feast, a banquet. Now here's what's fascinating. The covenant was made between God and Israel, right? What does Isaiah say? Is, is this whole thing about the Gentiles, is this just some Pauline concoction in the New Testament? No, Isaiah says that that banquet is going to be for who? For all peoples. The crazy Gentiles? Yes. That's always been part of his plan. All of the stupid pagans are going to be there. No longer pagans, but former pagans. On this mountain, Zion, a banquet of what? Aged wine, baby. This is not, this is not the, um, I don't know, whatever. This, is not, this ain't even Manischewitz. Like, this is the good stuff. And choice pieces with marrow. Again, Kansas City barbecue will be present, will be representing. <laughs> and refined aged wine. It's like as if to reiterate. He's like, aged wine. And the Baptist's like, yeah, but that doesn't really mean aged wine. He's like, and I'll let me just repeat, aged wine. I'm just kidding. It's not like an Islamic thing. Like, we're going to get drunk. It's just the point is the best, right? And we're in our glorified, resurrected bodies. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, the veil of ignorance and blindness, which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over the nations of death and ignorance and, again, uh, the glory of the Lord will rise and shine. So, understanding the backstory, anyone who is Old Testament literate, anyone who knows the story, understands God made covenant, betrothal ceremony with Israel. They know the prophecies of Isaiah that the ultimate eschatological wedding is happening at the end of the age when the Messiah comes, when God comes back. 
So when Jesus shows up, when Yeshua shows up, go to the next slide in Matthew, and he's talking all the time about this feast. What's he talking about? He's pointing back to Isaiah. He's making reference to that which was well understood. So when he heard, he's talking about the centurion. He's like, man, this guy, this, this centurion, he's not even Jewish. He's got like incredible faith. He marveled and he said to those who were following, he goes, I have never even seen such great faith with anyone in Israel. And he says, listen up. I say to you that in that day, many will come from the east and from the west. In other words, just like what Isaiah said, all peoples. He's going, guys, there's going to be Gentiles coming from all over the world. And they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The faithfuls of old, the forefathers, with Elijah, with David, you know, with the faithfuls of old and the pagans. The stupid pot, former pothead from Boston is going to be there. We're, you know, if you're a Gentile... He's like, look, this thing is much bigger than just Israel. And there's going to be a feast. And he's clearly harking back to Isaiah 25. So then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. So what's interesting is that in messianic congregations, like in churches, there's the table up here, do this in remembrance of me. And, and usually the, the breaking of the bread and the drinking, that, you know, the communion or... In, Catholic Church, they call it um, the what the Eucharist. But you know, in most Protestants, they call it communion. Like that's, or at least in the more traditional churches, that's the pinnacle of the service. And then in many Messianic, you know, Kiddush and so forth. But it's often framed much like it's kind of detached from the "Do this in remembrance of me." Sometimes there's some connection, but there's almost like this weird kind of like, well, we don't want to quite do it like the the, the Christians. You know, and it's a, it has more of a Jewish flavor. But here's what's uh, fascinating. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Of course, this is just before Passover. But it's much more than just Passover. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, after the supper, saying, this is the, the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what's fascinating is it became known as the Lord's Supper. And whenever they gathered together, they would do this, not just on Passover, but regularly. And so they would do it. Here's the thing. They would break the bread, they would drink the wine, and they would remember what? What are they remembering? They remember Mount Sinai. They remember the Sinaitic Covenant the first towering mountain. They remember the blood of that covenant. They remember the blood that was shed at the second towering mountain, which is the actual showing up, the incarnation, the first coming of the Messiah. They remember the blood that was shed on the cross. But in both cases, they're looking forward to the culmination, the the towering mountain, the conclusion, the crescendo of the whole story. And the new covenant, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And many in the church, they say, well, we're going to all be raptured up and we'll be in heaven while Israel's down on earth suffering from the Antichrist. I go, really? It's their wedding. We, if we're Gentiles, get to be part of it by the grace of God because we're children of Abraham by faith, by grace. Praise God. You're lucky to be part of it. Don't create some narrative that says you're up there partying with Jesus And the Jews are down there suffering. It's in Jerusalem. Where does Isaiah say? He says it's on Mount Zion, on this mountain. 
Like, you can't get any more clear than that. And, and again, if you know the full biblical narrative, you understand what Jesus was alluding to, you understand what Paul's alluding to, it's clear. There is a huge party coming on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. This is our story. We will see it. We will taste it. We will be there. He says, I won't drink from this again, into the fruit of the vine, until I drink it afresh in the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom? When is the kingdom of God? Is it now? Right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he will come back in glory with his angels, and then he will sit on his glorious throne, which is the restored throne of his father David on Mount Zion. Amen. All right. Sorry, I'm horrible at ending. I went long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of redemption that we're part of. We thank you for the glory of this story. We ask that you would encourage us, that we would leave encouraged, that the story would be real in our spirits, that as the darkness covers the earth and deep darkness expands and covers the peoples, the Gentiles, the nations, that we would be encouraged because we have an anchor of hope for our souls, firm and secure as the storms rage. This thing is unshakable. We ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on this, encourage us in our spirits, and that all who have this hope would purify themselves, that we would walk clean in this time of shaking, this time of the church being shaken, of this, um, this train wreck throughout the church, that we would be those that, that keep our heads low and that we would walk clean and pure before you as we look forward to the day when you come back in glory. We thank you for these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen.